The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. To be able to sing and to know that it's true, Christ is mine, Christ is ours forevermore. And that is by grace alone, a gift from you. Praise the Lord. The truest treasure, the the real hope, Him, given to us by your decision, by your work, not by ours. Thank you. Will you help us now in this moment to with, with that backdrop sung and thought about to, to look at this passage and to consider the, the issue before us this morning against that. We talk about false treasure, but help us to see true treasure and to, to hope and to rejoice in the fact that you have made him available to us. Call us on in pursuit of him and carry us home to him. Further us in that path this morning here with this passage, will you help us to hear it, to hear it well, help me to speak about it, to speak about it well. But Spirit of God, our hope is in you that you would make clear the truth and show us Christ. Thank you for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Wealth is a tricky thing. Sometimes a blessing. It can be very useful for accomplishing much good and providing appropriate comfort and safety and delight. And at other times, it's a curse. The root of all sorts of sin. We turn to it and and go into excess and abuse and distortion and twisted desire. It's an evil that destroys people and destroys communities. It's a tricky thing because it's so powerful. When we're dealing with wealth or money or resources or valuable goods, I'm going to use those words interchangeably this morning. When when we're dealing with, with wealth or money, we're dealing with something very powerful that, frankly, we don't do well with often. It's a trouble to us. It's a great opportunity and there's great trouble and we often don't do well with it. And so God kindly in his word has a lot to say to us about wealth in this passage included. A warning today about wealth, which really, I hope, comes off as as much an encouragement about something else. We kind of sang about that, kind of prayed about already, you kind of see where this is going. It, It is a warning about wealth, but it's meant to also be an encouragement about something else. Often we chase wealth for something else. Nobody really wants just an accumulation of green and white paper in their house. It's it's what that gets us. We're, we're after wealth to get us something else, to get us what we think will provide life for us. That's what we're ultimately after. And the warning is, wealth can't do that. But the hope is that life is available and meant to be chased, meant to be found, meant to be acquired and gained and enjoyed in Christ. The true treasure. 
And so there's a warning here and there's, there's a hope here. That, that's the good news that we're moving towards at the end here in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 6. A passage that starts out, it may seem in a different direction with a warning about false teachers, but it starts out that direction because it's an important thing for the church to consider and because what was behind them in, in Ephesus there was this problem of wealth. So it starts out with false teachers and it's going to come around to how we think about money, lies we believe about it, and the hope that's actually found in Christ. So that's where we're going. Let me read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 10, and then draw two observations from the passage. Paul writes, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. First Timothy 6. Two observations. Here's the first. False teachers and their methods must be identified and rejected. False teachers and their methods must be identified and rejected. Our paragraph begins with a sentence that's really a part of verse 2 and a transition between verses 2 and 3. Paul has said this sort of thing often in a few different places. What he wants Timothy as pastor to teach and preach in the church, and specifically he means what just came before, teach that, but on the other hand, avoid this, verse 3, false teaching and false teachers. And what follows in verses 3 to 5, and really then it picks up again in verses 9 and 10, is a long description that doesn't have a command in it. There's no overt command, but the clear and obvious need that Paul's bringing before Timothy, before the church, before us even, is the need to identify false teaching and reject it and eject it from our midst. Both to reject it, not hear it, but eject it, get it out of the church. Because it's destructive and evil and fatal to the church if not confronted. So Paul confronts it again, like he did in chapter 1 already. If you, if you were here then, you recall he addressed this already before, but here he does it again with a few different details. Not because, important point here, not because Paul himself or Timothy or we are supposed to be like mean-spirited and harsh. It's driven by love. It's a shepherd caring for sheep with wolves present. 
That's not the environment of, well, you know, potato, potato, whatever. No. It's children protecting, parents protecting children from evil. It's not, not, well, you say and I say, that's okay. No, you identify it so as to reject it and eject it. And that's from love and wisdom. So this is important. We walk through the description. And the person engaged in teaching different doctrine, that's the phrasing there in verse 3, teaches the following. Here's the closest thing we get in, in the book here to the definition of false teaching. False teaching is anything contrary to, that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, to put it a different way, he's not saying two things, he's saying the same thing twice here in this verse. It doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, to put it another way, teaching that matches and leads to godliness. So it doesn't agree with Christ's teaching that is the teaching of godliness. False teachers are those who are on the inside, who are in the household of God, but who disagree with and oppose the teaching of the Lord of that house. That's the problem. So we're not talking about people out in the world. It's not our job to police what everybody out there says. The, the world at large will say whatever the world says. That's, that's not what this is talking about, and that's not our job. Our job is to identify, to confront, and not allow this inside the church, specifically our own church. We're talking about people who claim to be Christians, but who in some way have an influence in our congregation and who teach contrary to Christ. They might, first off, they might not agree with the basic facts about Jesus, who he is himself, seen how, seen in how Paul entitles him here. This Jesus is God Almighty, come in the flesh. That's what he means by Lord. He's the second person of the one triune God. Fully God. Come in flesh. A guy named Jesus. He's the Lord Jesus. Both those things put together. He is fully God. He is the one who made everything, through whom everything was made, for whom everything is made. And he's a person who walked the earth. The Lord Jesus, who is also the Christ which is to say, he picks up all this imagery from the Old Testament, he's the Messiah, King, and Savior. The only one, the only one through whom sin can be atoned for, the only one who can open the door to heaven. The only one who can make a person in right standing with God. The only one who can save anyone, anywhere, ever. So false teachers may right off disagree with the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. They may say, he's a nice guy. He's a really good teacher. He's a moral man. And they'd be wrong. Disagree with his person or perhaps with his work. False teachers may claim there are other ways to be saved, other ways to please God, that other religions work too for other people. That's not true. They may downplay the need to come to Jesus alone in humble faith. The true gospel, in other words, says 
here is this God who became man, who came to be the only way to be saved and be made right with God. And false teachers, in one way or another, will undermine that, taking away from Jesus or taking away from his work and often combining in something of our work. In some way or another, we have to contribute to that to make ourselves worthy. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot about Jesus for sure. And us. And that's not the truth. That's false. It's deadly. And so we have to confront that and identify false teachers by, first off, noticing false teaching itself. Does their teaching match the Scripture and lift up Christ and lead people to Christ-likeness, to godliness, by humble faith? This is the teaching that the church needs for life. We're not just quibbling about things we like or things we understand. It's, it's, it's for life. This is what nourishes, saves and nourishes people as we hear the word of God and hear the true gospel of the true Jesus in the word and therefore in seeing and knowing and enjoying what Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we see and know and enjoy God. We have to protect this in the church. So we're looking for the content of the person's teaching, and we're also looking at manner and character. Verse 4. Anyone who teaches contrary to the biblical gospel of grace is astonishingly proud, puffed up in conceit, and ignorant, both at once. Because it, almost by, by inverse definition, if you're teaching what is false, that shows that you don't know what's true. But they're proud enough to assume the right to teach it. And it seems they love, in fact, love to teach as contrarians. There's an unhealthy craving. Literally, this word talks about having a sick enjoyment of controversy and quarreling about words that relishes it. This false teacher relishes that. And that has a dramatic and terribly destructive impact in the church community. Notice, notice there are five words there listed then, all different ways of, of describing strife. The teacher's proud and loves to produce controversy and quarreling, producing envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction. That's the kind of person that he is, this false teacher, and that's then the kind of environment that grows up around him in the church. Complete opposite of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Complete opposite of godliness. Complete opposite of Christ-likeness, which makes perfect sense when you consider carefully the next phrase. Where does it come from? Literally, verse 5 says, constant friction. Literally, it means, having been made perverted men in mind and having been made destitute of truth. So these teachers, they, they teach these things and they cause this atmosphere having been made something already. Think about that. Having been made, that's passive. They didn't do it themselves. It was done to them. Having been made something by whom? Who perverted their minds? Who blinded their minds so that they can't see and can't know the truth? 
This is Satan's work. So we're walking through this and we're talking about people. And really what we're talking about is Satan's attack on the church. It's, it's easy to talk about verses and words and phrases and what they mean. And, and it's easy to think about, yeah, we should do that. We shouldn't go that. that that's the truth. We shouldn't follow this. And, and then we need to say, hold on a minute. There's a guerrilla war going on right now, always. With a mortal, eternal, mortal and eternal enemy of the church, always on the front foot, aggressive. Always. And if you have a mind or an eye to see him, then you see like, oh, there he is right there. So we're dealing with so-and-so trying to figure out how, how do we combat this false teaching about, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, certainly the cross and your own works. How do we deal with that? Well, Satan is right there trying to kill us. That, that like ramps it up a notch in importance here. We're not dealing with just an interpersonal issue of, man, somebody's saying some things that are complicated and some people are following him and how do we deal with that socially and, the enemy of our souls is at work behind the false teaching. This should alert us. There's something real and important here. Satan's game plan always to start with the teachers and their teaching, their content and their manner both, because he knows that what that always produces is dissension in the church. It always produces error and wandering and falsehood. It always tears people down. It always deprives them of life. It always leads them astray. And so then when the church, as the pillar and buttress of the truth, remember that from chapter 3, what then does the church lift up in the world? The church lifts up in the world the world. And says, here's what it's like to be a Christian, just like everything else. Quarreling, relying on our own selves, backbiting. Yuck. Don't bother coming here. No unique life here. And the church is dead. That's the game plan always. And it always starts with an attack through the teaching, through the teaching of the truth or falsehood. So we need to be alert to this and clearly Paul's point in walking through all of these details is so that we would see it and understand, oh, that's what it looks like. Oh, there it is. And oh, that's where it comes from. This is serious. Ah, to notice it, to reject it, and eject it, like cutting out a cancer. Get rid of it. So, we note that. However, I stopped in the middle of the verse there because we need to note that and put that front and center and be alert to that. This is not the first time Paul's talked about it in this book. He's very, very, very concerned about leadership, about their character, about the content of their teaching again and again and again. He touches on that. So I have no problem leaning on that again. And then I want to say, however, he's actually going in a different direction. 
There's something else to notice here. Paul points out false teachers and tells us how to identify them, but also he then tells us why they're doing this. Put it a different way. He tells us like what went wrong in them here or, or here. What went wrong? When Satan distorted them to think, when he twisted their minds and deprived them of the truth, what false teaching did he teach them? Ground zero of the false teaching, if you will. What was it? And the reason this is important for us is not just as a historical analysis, that's what the false teachers in Ephesus are dealing with, good to know, but because that is a very, very foundational core false teaching that he's going to try to sell to all of us too. Very end of verse 5. Satan's warped their minds. They've come to imagine that godliness, here Paul means their, their ministry, their ministry of godliness. We might say that religion, that godliness is for profit. Profit's what they really want. It's as if he's whispered in their ears, this religion business, it can pay. And that's what you really want. Because then with the pay, you get life. Maybe actual cash, maybe prestige, maybe honor, maybe reputation, maybe followers. When you, you create this all this division, you can have people who puff you up and, and feed your pride. Whatever the means you think you can pursue, what you're really after is the profit, and you can get it in this religion game. The profit is what you need. And when you profit, then you'll have something. Then you'll be able to live, live the good life. So the false teaching, the ground zero false teaching that, that Satan first sold to them and then that drives them to become false teachers is that what I should do for life is I should pursue profit. I know I can get it by being a false teacher, but they're pursuing profit. A common lie about wealth. And that's what brings us to the next point. The love of money kills while only Christ contentment brings life. The love of money kills, while only Christ contentment brings life. At the end of verse 5, the focus shifts from this one significant motive that the false teachers are facing. That's, that's the problem that's at their root, but it's, it's one that's common to humanity, and so the language quickly becomes universal. At the beginning of verse 9, it's those who desire to be rich whoever those ones may be. In whatever era, in whatever country, here included, maybe here especially. This very easily, very easily could be us. Could be you. Could be me. Even if you're not remotely rich. Sometimes you hear a passage like this and, and you start to see words like rich, and you think like, well, I'm not rich. Must be talking about them. 
No. It's those who desire to be rich. Those who love money, not necessarily have any. Those who love it. And if those two words, love money, seem a little extreme still, then let's back off those and let's, let's come at it a different way. Money. Well, how about wealth? How about goods? How about products? How about experiences? How about benefits, all of which money buys? How about security and protection from the threats of the world, which money can acquire for you? We, we make this perhaps a little too narrow if we think just about cash, just about dollars, what's in my bank account. We're talking about wealth, and I'm using those kinds of words to make clear that this really becomes quite wide. It becomes the stuff that I can acquire, the experiences that I can obtain, the security that I can buy myself, all of which is, is in, our, in our world negotiated with dollar bills. But it's not just about money. And it's, it's common in our world today to kind of be like anti-money. But all the people that I know that are anti-money are very much in favor of things like health, which money buys, very much want nice experiences, which money buys, very much want to live somewhere, which money buys. Come on. Wealth. And if you think, ah, I don't know if I love it. I love my kids, but I don't love those things. Fair enough. Let's back off from that and say this is really about heart. And better words might be depend on, look to, trust in, desire. Maybe those words apply better. Those who depend on wealth. Those who seek it out. Those who want it in hope of the good life it brings. Those who need it for security. Those who delight in it for its pleasure and its, its, its uh, heart buoyancy. Those who, when the bank account begins to dive off, feel a little threatened. And when the bank account becomes a little flush, feel, okay. This could be all of us. So, it could be all of us even if we don't have any money. It could be all of us if we don't really love money. This could be you if you're a college student and you've got, you've got nothing to your name, but you're thinking about, oh, when I get a job then. This could be you if you're homeless even. This could be you if you're retired and you're living on a fixed income but you very, 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 very carefully attend to the finances that you have because that's where your security lies. It's us. Those who love money and desire to be rich are in for some trouble. The problem begins with, there's a chain of events here, the problem begins with a wrong imagination. Life is found and secured in what I can acquire and experience here in this world, and then therefore I want to be rich. 
so as to be able to acquire and experience. And then what follows, verse 9, all kinds of temptation, a snare. And do you see who's behind that again? Snares, traps, imply trappers, a hunter. Temptation implies a tempter. He's trying to sell you the false lie, the false teaching. Led there then by desire, more desires follow like little, little Pucian cords, you know, one by one, a little desire and a little desire, they tie you down one by one by one by one and lead you into senseless and harmful desires. It says folly that leads to hurt of you and of other people. We've, we've all experienced this in life in lots of different settings where, where one problem is answered with another problem. So somebody does something foolish and then you double down and try to cover that. You lie and then you lie to cover a lie and you lie to cover both of those lies. But even if it's not something sinful, how much do we get ourselves financially hooked? Even just something so simple as, I've got to work long hours because the mortgage that I have is huge. Why is that? Because I bought a huge house. And then on top of that, now the long hours that I've got to work, now I, I mean, now I'm away from my family and, and I'm tired all the time. And so when I'm with my family, I'm, I'm less than I could be. One little thing after another, Lilliputian cords tying you down. You burn the candles at all three or four ends and senselessly harming yourself and others and your relationships suffer and your ever-deadening, insensitive heart suffers. And you find yourself plunged at the end of verse 9. You didn't dive in, you were plunged into temporal, earthly, this-life ruin. Two different things there, ruin and destruction. Temporal, earthly, this life, ruin. And then, after life falls apart on earth, eternal destruction. I thought we were just talking about being greedy. Talking about hell? Yeah. For some, it says, some, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, impaled themselves on many pangs, having wandered all the way into eternal destruction, wandered away from the faith. That's not me. I'm not going there. Maybe not. Maybe not. But this path leads there. And the warning, the, the clear warning from the Scripture is that this path leads, this path, little by little by little, is full of snares set by a really, really, really clever hunter who hates you. And he's laid out temptation and snare and trap, and one by one, little cord is tying you down. And what that's leading you to is in this life, ruin. And at the end of that path is eternal destruction. I'm not going there. Then don't. The Christian hears this and says, that path leads there, and says, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with that path. 
The love of money leads to all kinds of evils, including my ruin and eternal destruction. I'm out. That's what the Christian says. When the Christian hears this and walks it through in his mind or her mind, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to flee that kind of temptation. I don't want that to happen to me. The Christian responds to those warnings and turns away from them. So turn away from them. In your mind, say, whoa, no. There's a great big, huge warning here that most of us in our culture don't get. We don't hear it because we swim in the water. We don't see the water. There's a danger there. So we have to hear that and turn away from it. And, and maybe, I, I, I don't know, I've not lived in other times and other places, but perhaps Americans today more than most need to hear this because we are constantly bombarded. It's the water that we swim in. We, we live in an advertising-rich world, and we all have Instagram accounts. Maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have Instagram accounts where constantly what's coming at you is, here's what you need for life. And if you get this, you know how you get that? You buy it. And then you'll have life. We get that this frequent all the time. And so we need to be alerted. That's not true. It isn't. It's pounded at us daily. And so you need to hear it perhaps daily. That's not true. The heart and mind rest, the joy-giving life, the soul-satisfying life that you're looking for is not found in the abundance of things, stuff, and adventure. It isn't. But then also hear this, that kind of life is available and it's supposed to be found. Verse 6. He does not just lay out the danger, although he does spend more verses talking about the danger. Right in the middle of it, he laced in the hope. Verse 6, he invites us to turn back to godliness with contentment, to Christ-centered contentment. As much as you hear the warning, if you just hear the warning, it doesn't do you any good at all. It doesn't do you any good at all. There are, there are tons of religions and tons of philosophies that would say something similar to that and would just, if that's all you heard, would just say, uh, so don't love money and don't be duped into thinking that's where life's found. The end. That's not the end. There's actually some, some hope here. There's some, some sweet hope here. The opposite of craving to be rich, of loving money, is not... Don't love money. Be content with nothing. In other words, the opposite of desiring lots of riches is not being content with just a few riches. It's a different kind of desiring and a different kind of gain. Christ gain in godliness and being content right there with that. Christ gain. 
We are to seek and desire gain, great gain, in fact. And God's told us it's available, and he made it available, and he expects us to want it and go find it and enjoy it when we get it. The problem is that we're looking in the wrong place. It's not available in the wealth and stuff of the world. It's not. But seek it, please, and find it in Christ's earnest, a heart that is after God and is content with him. Remember, we talked about godliness before. We're talking about first the heart, not our actions. First the heart that is God-centered, that is God-focused, that is God-looking, that is God-seeing, that is God-loving, that is God-conformed, that is Christ-like. And then what comes out of that are different actions. But not the actions. It's the heart first. To look to Christ. To enjoy Christ. Who, if you're a Christian, who you have already. Because of God's gracious, loving decision to give him to you. He pulled up next to you and parked right inside of you. The hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He parked right inside of you. The hope of glory. God himself. The great gain of godliness is communion with God himself. The the seeing of that which is the definition of beauty, the definition of good, the definition of sweet love. We sang in one of the songs, His love is my reward. What that means is the thing that you get is love from God. Divine love from God. John talks about this. God loves us how much? With the same love with which he loved the Son. God the Father loves God the Son. How much do you think? I don't know, a lot. That's how much he loves you. Christian. That's life. Anybody ever been in a dating or a marriage relationship where you've experienced, I don't care what happens, she loves me. If you're married, I kind of think back to that. <laughs> I don't care what happens, she loves me. She said yes. He said yes. Oh, I don't care what happens. Shoot me now. What you're experiencing in that moment is something which we know because of the way human life works is is naive. But God made that because there's something that's true about that. Marriage is about something else. You know, you, you caught something right there that you know fades away, but there's something right there that doesn't fade away somewhere else when you get what it's about. Christ and the church, Christ and you. The love of God. I don't care what happens to me, he loves me. Your reward, life. And if he gives me a lot of other stuff, plenty, great, I'm content with that. If he gives me a very little other stuff, great, I'm content with that too. I do need food and water and shelter, yeah, but I don't really care what else I have because I'm content with Christ. He loves me. What else? What else? 
Godliness, a Christward heart, a Godward heart, is itself the gain, not the means to some other gain. It's the gain. The gain we long for. That's how we're made. We're not made to be satisfied with the stuff. The stuff is to point us to Him. See His goodness and what He gives. He's the one we're after. He gave you Himself inside of you, the hope of glory. He loves you. What else do you need? So, think with me about this. There's going to come a time when all of this ends. It's coming soon. Everything you now have will be laid down and passed on to someone else. Or they'll park a dumpster in your driveway and shovel it in. The career you built, the house you stretched to be able to afford and then meticulously and proudly maintained, the car, the golf handicap, the vacation photographs, the deluxe cookware that worked so well, the sports trophies that cost you a lot of sweat and tears, the hobby knickknacks, the garden box, the seashells, spouse and the grandkids. It all stays here and you take none of it with you. And what then? Will you know the only one who is there to meet you on the other side. We sometimes in our culture talk about, I'm going to look forward to seeing you know, Aunt Sally and Grandpa, Grandpa John when I get there. Not first. Will you know the only one who is there to meet you on the other side? The only one who will be seated there in judgment when you open your eyes again. Will you know him? And when you see him, will you live? And if not, if you're not sure, today is the day, now is the time. Nothing here matters. Trust Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can open the door to heaven and give you life. Trust Jesus to pay for your sin. Will you know him when you open your eyes and see him? Will you live? And if so, think, in what then at that moment is your life? Not in the left-behind seashells, garden box, knickknacks, and trophies. The deluxe cookware is forgotten. The vacation photographs, too. The great house you had is gone because you're dead. and alive again and truly home in your real house. Having gained Christ, who is your life, him and nothing more, you didn't take anything with you, but you have life fully.
And you know what? If you have him there, then you have him here too already. Christ, who is your life, and nothing more. Christ, who is your life there, Christ, who is your life here. Him and nothing more there, him and nothing more here. And Satan's ground zero lie, the false teaching that he's pushing to you through whispering in your own ear, through false teachers slipped into the church, any means necessary, the lie he's whispering to you is, that's not enough, you need more. If you had, then you would. Then you'd be satisfied. The gain is found in the stuff of earth. So, so leverage every situation. Use every opportunity to maximize yourself proudly, working to make it all profitable for you. Get gain. That's how you get life. And that's a lie. And our fruitless, restless searching should have proved that point by now. But we're fallen and in need of help. And so God says, here's the truth and here's Christ Communion with him, contentedness with him. He loves you. He loves you. That's what you need. That's all you really need. Him who is life. To believe that will make you incredibly resilient and joyful when you have a lot and when you don't have anything. And it will be a powerful weapon against the chasing of everything. and a powerful weapon for the giving away of whatever. You're going to have stuff. He's going to put things in your lap that you'll say, eh, nice, but I could pass that on. I could use it. I could keep it. It's enjoyable. God's given me a gift, yes. Or I could pass it on. I don't need it. I have what I need. He loves me. We have to know this truth, and more than know the truth, have to know him that the truth is about. It can be incredibly, incredibly helpful to know this and then to know him can be incredibly helpful for buoying our hearts and for freeing us to live generously. And, and frankly, I think this is the only spot where we have any hope of knowing how to live properly, generously. Because you've got to buy a house sometime, right? I've banged on that a little bit. The house you stretch to afford. How much house should you afford? That much? Or 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 that much? I'm working on a manual to tell you how to do that. But it's really hard, so it's taken me a while. Right? Who knows? How do, how do you know what to do with all that? And that's just houses. What about cars? Leather seats or not? How do you know? The, I think the only way we have any hope of, of dealing with that well is to really, 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 really get this. And so I don't care, a lot or a little. I, I'm, I'm okay either way. I'm content with much, with plenty, or with, or with very little because I have what I need. He loves me. Now, leather seats, you can heat those things in the winter. I like that. Let's get them. Or I would more enjoy saving the $2,100 and giving it to you. live in joy then. Live in, in pleasure then. I would enjoy this. I would enjoy that. And my joys are properly ordered beneath the joy that I find in Christ. 
That's the only way to solve all that. It doesn't answer all the thousands of questions, but it's the only way to get there, the only way to start getting there. And that's why constantly the Bible leans on know Christ and then take him to the car dealership and make a purchase with him. And you'll be okay. Because you'll be content in him, and that's where true gain lies, true profit lies. God has given us Christ because he wants to bless us and bless us with Christ and keep us from the deception that the life is found in the world is not. But we have as a good and generous God. In him we trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the true treasure that is Jesus. And I pray that you would help us all to believe that first and then to turn to him. And then would you graciously make him found? It is not in our power to find you. We don't, we don't catch you and make you do anything for us. But we ask you, will you please make yourself found? Bless your people, please. Bless your people with yourself. Experience. You are present. Give us the experience of your presence and the joy found only in you. And build us up strong and faithful, joyful and generous because of it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.